Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42, just going to read these two verses, and then we're going to dive right in. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. What if I told you that I went into the doctors last year? Doctor asked me how I was doing, and I, I told him the following. I said, well, Doc... I lost about 20 pounds in a week. I've been feeling extremely moody with constant mood swings. I've had this recurring headache. I want to nap all the time. And I've had a persistent cough along with some chest pain. Oh, also... I can't see straight. And the doctor said, okay, well, what have you been doing? And I said, well, doc, I'm, I'm on this kind of diet or I'm this, on this regiment, this health regimen, if you would. I like to sit on my couch for 12 hours. What? Is that funny? And, and I want to play video games. And I'm on this steady diet of Fritos and Funyuns. And I like to wash it down with a two-liter bottle of Cherry Coke. And then the doc said to me, congratulations. Wow, that's not supposed to happen. You're in great shape. What would you say about that doctor? You need another second opinion, right? Do you think I'm healthy? Think I'm in good shape? Do you think, let me ask you something, do you think my habits are contributing to, to my, my poor health? Absolutely. And do you think there are certain signs that I'm going to exhibit, like, I don't know, can't see straight, that exhibit poor health? Absolutely. Do you think the same thing goes for a church, folks? Do you think that there are markers of a church that can tell you and me whether or not that church is in good health? And do you think the habits that they practice can either be good for that health, to maintain that health, or can harm that health? Absolutely. Today's passage is all about a healthy congregation. And we see here that a healthy congregation is known by its good habits of devotion. This church explodes. There are 3,000 new members. Can you imagine going out in the Gorham into the public square, preaching a gospel, one sermon, and then having 3,000 people show up here next week? What would we do? Well, I hope we would do the same things that we're trying to continue to do because those things haven't changed, have they? Because the marks of a healthy church, the things that a church is supposed to do 
to maintain its health, and the things that will actually show that it's a healthy church have not changed over thousands of years. So we're going to go into the doctors for a checkup today. We're going to see how we are doing. Because if we're not practicing healthy habits, the body is about to get sick. I want you to notice a few things here. The first verse is a transition verse. You could go with the other passage, definitely, because that's the results of Peter's sermon. But then it leads into what follows. So these individuals, I want you to notice something. They, all of those who are saved, plus the existing congregation in Jerusalem, are all dedicating themselves to these practices. This is a corporate effort, but that corporate body is made up of individuals like you and me. Everyone's involved. No one's excluded. These people were mostly travelers. They had jobs. They had families. They had lives. They had friends. They had all of these things, but look at what they prioritized, the body of Christ. It's my prayer that we do the same. That we are a vibrant, healthy, devoted body of believers that is making an impact on each other and on this community for God. So we're going to dive right into these four habits. You can see in, the, in, in, in verse 42 there. They devoted themselves to four things, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayers. So the first habit of a healthy church is that it is devoted to biblical learning. In his recent book, The Wisdom Pyramid, Brett McCracken shares the following story about his father. He says, I will always remember my dad's Bible. As a kid, it was a fixture in our house. Thick, black, leather-bound, with gold leaf edges, stuffed full of church bulletins, scripture memory cards, and who knows what else. The well-worn pages were adorned with underlined verses, variously colored highlighted sections, and scribbled margins. I saw dad with it almost every day, studying during his quiet time, preparing a Sunday school lesson, or leading our family in a dinnertime devotional. The presence of dad's Bible was a comfort to me. I think it made the Bible actually even more credible to me. For dad, it wasn't just a prop that he brought to church on Sundays. It was his beloved source of guidance for everyday life. And he said, as a result of it, my life was full of the Bible. And my story isn't unique. The Bible has been a treasured source of truth and life all over the world for countless generations. It manages to speak to the soccer mom in San Diego as much as to the truck driver in Taipei. It guides the life of a skateboarding teenager in 2020 Buenos Aires as much as it did the blacksmith in 1520 Liverpool. 
Everywhere you go in the world, people who share almost nothing else in common can say in unison, the B-I-B-L-E, yeah, that's the book for me. Folks, a healthy church knows and lives out that song, the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. Notice it was their first target. What's their first target? To submit to the biblical or doctrinal teaching of the apostles. A healthy church cannot continue to be a healthy church if that church is not devoted to this book right here. And not just to the knowledge of it, but to the application of it. You can know a whole bunch of facts from the Bible, but if you're not letting it change your life, guess what? doesn't matter. That's exactly what these individuals did. They submitted to the biblical preaching and teaching of God's word and of the doctrine of the apostles, the teaching of the apostles. They were devoted to it. I want to look at that word. Continually devoted means that they did this over and over and over and over and over and over. You want me to keep going? And over and over and over again. They didn't stop devoting themselves to learning this teaching. It was continuous. It's in the present tense. happens all the time. And it was a habit. And it was a good habit. And that's to be the habit of a church. We need to be sitting under His Word. We need to be allowing His Word to transform us because this is where the teaching of the apostles is found. It's in the Bible. The Bible is to be a primary target for us as a church. It is extremely important and no church is going to continue to grow in faith, in knowledge, in Christ, apart from that teaching. And I hope, I hope and pray that when you come here, and I hope it just doesn't happen on a Sunday, I hope that your, your Bible knowledge and growth and your submission to the Word is happening also Monday through Saturday as well. But if you, if you come here, and if you just want to come here and, and hear a sermon or, or a message that is just going to kind of make you feel good and not challenge you. And, not, and if you're just going to say, oh, that's a great message, you know, great illustrations. I'm going to forget all about it as soon as I leave. Then kind of defeating the whole purpose, aren't we? The goal is our growth. Steve Lawson says this. Doing God's work in God's way requires an unwavering commitment to the primacy of biblical preaching and teaching. Unwavering commitment to that. To applying God's word to our lives and allowing that word to transform us. And he says the early church experienced spiritual vitality not because of gimmicky techniques, but because it focused on the priority of biblical teaching. They were a learning church. It's not just a nod to the Bible. Yeah, we believe in the Bible, and then we put it on the shelf, and then we don't apply it to our lives, and then we do all this fun and wonderful stuff at church. And we speak about, I don't know, we do devotionals to 
Frodo or whatever it may be is a latest trend. And we don't know, and what we have to see actually is that it seems like the, the church is headed in the opposite direction. There's a, and it has to do with, it came out with Ligonier's recent survey. And it has to do with biblical theology in evangelical church. 55%, I could give a whole bunch of statistics, 55% of interviewed evangelical Christians, that's more than half, said that though we may sin a little bit, people by nature are good. That's insanity. That's a basic teaching of the church, of Christianity, that by nature we are what? Not good. These, so that also means that 55% of Christians don't have children. Because they just, no, they, I don't understand that. And there, I don't have to teach my child to do bad. I, I didn't have to teach, a day is great now. She's a great daughter. I won't, a day, don't worry, I won't give any embarrassing illustration. Let me, my mom didn't have to teach me to do bad. That came real naturally, and I was real good at it too. So what are we teaching our churches if that's a statistic? And maybe people are teaching it, but guess what? The congregation isn't receiving it. Folks, folks, that's, that's unacceptable, just absolutely unacceptable. God's Word is here to transform our lives. Biblical teaching and growing in the Word is the backbone of a healthy church. These individuals did just that. They did what actually Peter is going to tell people to do later on. They longed for the pure milk of the word so that they may what? Grow up to it in respect to their salvation. This past week, this past youth group that we had, I talked to the kids about the, in Ephesians, how God gave us apostles and prophets and teachers. And I asked them, you know, it's for, for what? And they answered the edification of the church for the work of spiritual service so you could be edified so you guys can do the work. But I asked them, what was Paul saying is the main goal of the church? Young student raises their hand and they say, maturity. That's it. Our kids know it. Do we? What's your Bible look like? Second habit, it is devoted to fellowship. It is devoted to fellowship. The U.S. forces in Baston were now surrounded by the Germans, Walter Cronkite says in a voiceover narration. But they held on. Major Richard Winters 101 First Airborne U.S. Army comments, and he says, we were seeing men break down due to the mental strain and also due to frostbite. He says roughly 30% of the casualties were because of frostbite. That Baston. The 101st defended Baston with dogged determination, even while supplies dwindled, munitions ran low, and morale began to slip. The Germans, Major Winters continues, 
were just a few miles away from their home territory. They had plenty of ammunition, and they continued to use it. This is going on and on, he says. So you're not sure how long you'll be around. But you know you're not leaving until it's done. He continues, a man who is in a unit, like we'll say Company E, they take a lot of pride in something. They take a lot of pride in sticking close to each other. They don't want to let their friends down. They want to do their part. And seeing that is beautiful. That's bonding. That's friendship. You have to see it. You have to live through it to appreciate the strength of it. And that's what we had. That's where we got the strength to go through it Again and again and again. You're not going to drop out. Why? Because your friends are there. You're going to stay cold. Well, if I can take it, if you can take it, I can take it. It's the bonding of men that keeps them together. And it was this bonding of brothers in combat that gave the men the strength to continue. What a great illustration of the absolute necessity of our fellowship. In 2021, the average American spent only two hours and 45 minutes a week with close friends. That dropped 58 percent since 2010 to 2013. More and more people want to stay alone. And God didn't create us that way. As a matter of fact, we need the opposite. I need you. You need me. We need each other. Because guess what? It's a battle out there. It's a battle out there. I need you to encourage me to stay in the battle when I want to stop. I need you to remind me why we're fighting the battle in the first place. I need you to tell me when I'm not fighting the battle properly. I need you. We need each other. And, and fellowship when we look at what fruitful fellowship is it, is, it is not just hanging out together. When we look at this idea of fellowship, it involves a close association involving mutual sharing. I am sharing something with you. You are sharing something with me. It is equal participation and equal impartation. You're giving me something and I'm giving you something and it has to do with what joins us together, which is our faith in Jesus Christ and the mission that he has given us to do. That's what these individuals did. 
when we think about it, it, we think about the coal imagery, and it's always used for fellowship. If a coal is moved away from the other coals that are hot, it's still a coal, but guess what? It's not doing the job that it needs to be doing. That's what the other coals are for. And they share that heat, and then they do what? They hopefully heat your burger or your hot dog and do what they're supposed to do. Fellowship has a a spiritual purpose. It is absolutely necessary for our spiritual health. It is intentionally gathering together to encourage each other in the faith and to encourage each other in the work that God has given us to do, that is proclaiming the gospel and reminding each other that, guess what? Our suffering and trials that we face are temporary. There's a battle out there, and we need each other. And when we rub elbows together, we're going to do what? We're going to rub each other the wrong way. That's part of it. That's okay. Because guess what? The spiritual realities that you and I share unite us and should overcome those temporary things that divide us. I'm going to get on your nerves. You're going to get on my nerves. Guess what? We'll deal with it. That's what it's all about. Because this is what's most important. This is who is most important. He's the one who's going to bond us together. And in Him, there's forgiveness. In Him, there's grace. So we should extend that to each other, right? And, and, and when we fellowship properly, when the church is doing what it's supposed to do, people are looking on the inside and be like, I don't know how they do it. They got people from all over the place. There's a freak show here. There's a freak show there. But together, they're beautiful freak shows. And they love each other. And the the people on the outside are going to say, what on earth is going on? And we tell them, I'll tell you what's going on. Jesus Christ, that's what's going on. There was a kid who was told he was going to church. And he actually stole a car, his parents' car. Seven-year-old kid stole his parents' car to avoid church. We should be stealing cars to be with each other. <laughs> Don't do that. You can't say your pastor told you to steal a car. I'll pick you up. We'll, fel- we'll fellowship together. What, are we intentionally doing this? Are we intentionally trying to get to know each other, even people who are not like us? The church should be the perfect picture of unity and diversity. How are we doing? Because it's essential to our spiritual health. Third habit is a church that is devoted to the Lord's Supper. So a couple things here before we, before we get into this. Part of our fellowship should definitely be the sharing of meals. Baptists have no problems with that at all. As a matter of fact, it's it's like in our nature to get together and eat food food together. And and I would encourage you, I would encourage you that in in order to get to know people, this is one of the best ways to do it. I would encourage you as a church to invite people over to your house 
make them a meal, sit down, share in your faith, share your life with them. That is how you are going to get to know each other. And that is definitely what the early church did as we're definitely going to, we're going to look at and see next week. But we have to ask ourselves, why is he distinguishing the breaking of bread from the fellowship? There's a major part of their fellowship, undoubtedly. They shared meals together, but there's a, a, the definite article before the breaking of bread, the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Well, if we understand what the early church did and, and how they celebrated or did their services, part of their services were gathering together for a, for a meal, and probably all these elements would take place. There'd be teaching, there'd be, there'd be prayer, there'd be worship, and there would be the sharing of a meal together. But also, either during or at the end of that meal, they would then do what? Celebrate the Lord's Supper. As a matter of fact, later on, Paul is going to write to the Corinthian church and he's going to rebuke them for abuses that were happening during this time. And he actually says, look, eat at home if you're going to be this way, because what's happening is you are, you are disgracing the Lord's Supper. So, so we see that the Lord's Supper was an integral part of their breaking of bread. And it should be a priority in the life of the church. A church is not a healthy church that does not practice exactly what we practice. And it just so happens we practiced it today. It's perfect timing. But what happens for us, I think, is the opposite. Is we can just get so caught up in the ritual of it all and we forget why we do it. In the 2017 lecture, Mark Menel addressed the connection between identity and memory. He says this, BBC Radio 3, the UK's primary classical music station, ran a fascinating series of articles on music and memory. Adam Zeman, a professor of cognitive and behavioral Neurology wrote about amnesia and memory loss and their relationship to epilepsy. Zeman mentioned two patients, Peter and Marcus, who described their amnesia in very similar terms. One said, My memory of my past is a blank space. I feel lost, and I feel hopeless. He says, it's like I'm trying to explore a void. Both described how disconcerting it is to look at photos. They recognize themselves, but they have no recollection of the moment. He said, it's like reading a biography of a stranger. He's conscious of recent memories slipping away from him, like ships sailing out to sea in a fog, never to return. Two things stand out in the essay. Number one, without memory, it is hard to cling to an identity. One of the patients said, 
I don't have the moorings that other people draw on to know who they are. Second, it's hard to have hope when we don't know our past. The inability, he says, to invoke the past greatly impedes their ability to imagine a future. And sum this up in any a better way. Identity and hope. In Christ, we are who we are. In Christ, we are established. In Christ is our identity. In Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are forgiven. In Christ, I am a new creation. In Christ, I will be in eternity with him and for, forever in heaven. In Jesus Christ. Remembering that helps us, encourages us in the present, and remembering that gives us what? Hope for the future, a definite hope for the future, because he says, proclaim this until I come again. Meaning, remind yourselves that guess what? The temporary suffering and problems and trials of this world are not going to last forever. I'm coming back and you're going to be with me. Identity and hope. It's who we are as a church. It's, it's what makes us a church. The gospel, the cross, that's something we never forget. That's something that should not just become a ritual. That should define and influence every part of us, every fabric of our being of a, as a congregation. I was so proud to be part of this fellowship last week. I'm always proud, but I was very, very, very proud last week. I'll tell you why I was proud. Because if you were to come in off the street into this church, and maybe, you, maybe, maybe all of a sudden you heard a voice from God, and he said, pull in to Galilee. I want you to attend Galilee today. And if you're to pull in into this congregation and know absolutely nothing about maybe even Christianity or, or this fellowship at the time, and you came in here, you could not leave without knowing one thing. Christ is absolutely central, and Christ is a priority, and Christ makes us who we are. It was in our music. It was in the message. It was all throughout Jesus Christ. What he's done for us on our behalf. How much we love him. Identity and hope. It's what we have in Christ. Constant reminder of the grace that we have been giving, given and the thanks that belong to him and the gospel that you and I are to be preaching and sharing with others. And it's a reminder that all of us need Him, that at the table, at the cross, we're all equal. We're all sinners. We all need His grace. Not one of us is better than the other. He's the one that we exalt. That's a healthy church.
It's devoted to the cross of Christ, devoted to the Lord's Supper. Final area of devotion, final habit, it's devoted to prayer. Guy tells a story. He says, one Sunday I was visiting one of Africa's largest slums, the massive Kibera slum of Nairobi, Kenya. He says the conditions were simply inhumane. People lived in shacks constructed out of cardboard boxes, foul smells gushed out of open ditches carrying human and animal excrement. I thought to myself, this place is completely God-forsaken. Then to my amazement, he says, right there among the dung, I heard the sound of a familiar hymn. He said, every Sunday, 30 slum dwellers crammed into this 10 by 20 foot sanctuary to worship God. The church was made out of cardboard boxes that had been opened up and stapled to studs. It wasn't pretty, but it was a church made up, it wasn't pretty, and it was a church made up of some of the poorest people on earth. He said, I was immediately asked to preach a sermon. I quickly jotted down some notes, and I was really looking forward to teaching this congregation about the sovereignty of God. But before the sermon began, I listened as some of the poorest people on the planet cried out to God. Jehovah Jireh, please heal my son as he is going blind. Merciful Lord, please protect me when I go home today for my husband always beats me. Sovereign King, Please provide my children with enough food today as they are hungry. I listened. And as I listened to their heartfelt prayers, I thought about my ample salary, my life insurance policy, my health insurance policy, my two cars, my house, etc., etc. And I realized I'm the one who doesn't trust in God's sovereignty on a daily basis. I have buffers in place to shield me from, my most from most economic shocks. I realize when these folks pray, give us this day our daily bread, they mean it. Their minds don't wander as mine so often do, does. I realized these slum dwellers were trusting in God's sovereignty just to get them through the day, and they had a far deeper intimacy with God because of it. 
a far greater, deeper intimacy with God than I will probably ever have in my entire life. One of the hardest things about preaching, folks, is time and space, which I've ran out of. But since I just told you that a devoted church devotes itself, or a healthy church devotes itself to biblical teaching, I think you're going to let me continue on for a little bit here. I think the illustration says a lot, doesn't it? Prayer. Prayer. They have nothing, but they have everything. I realize in our lives, we tend to pray more when things are bad. That's their normal, everyday life. We tend to call out on God more when things are rough in our lives, when things don't go that way. Folks, it should not be that way. A healthy church realizes its utter dependency on Him, whether we are here in Gorham, Maine, living in the suburbs, or whether we are living in the slums of Nairobi, Kenya. That's what a healthy church does. It understands its own weaknesses. It understands that it cannot take care of itself. It understands that God is sovereign and God will take care of all of our needs. And a healthy church continues day after day, no matter what the circumstances are, to cry out to Him for help and sustenance. The realization that you and I are utterly dependent on Him for absolutely everything. Walked by, walked into the ladies' study the other day. And they were talking about all things prayer. And there was a little handout. I have it right here. You can ask the Lynn's Bible study for the handout if you want. But I, I jotted down a few things about prayer. Under what it is. It is a duty and a discipline. It's not easy, is it? We've got to discipline ourselves to do it. And it's a duty. God calls us to pray. He calls us to pray as individuals. And He calls us to pray corporately. That's what this church was doing. They gathered together, teaching, fellowship, Lord's Supper, prayer. Intentionally. Set aside time to pray. To remind themselves of their dependency on God. It is an accepting of one's weakness and dependence. Prayer reorientates our view under what it gives us. It gives us a new perspective, a perspective that you and I need. It helps us with our priorities. And where it takes us is it takes us to trust and hope. Trust and hope. Those are all good things. A church that is not utterly dependent on God is a church that will not succeed in His kingdom. It may succeed here in, in an earthly way. And if you and I want to succeed in what He has called us to do, if we want to continue to be a healthy church, we need to be praying as a church. If we want guidance in our lives and wisdom in the decisions that we make, we need to pray. 
If we want bonds to be broken and relationships to be healed, we need to pray. If we want the lost to be saved and our community to be transformed, we need to pray. And if you and I want a deeper intimacy with God like these individuals had, we need to pray. We need to pray. That's what a healthy church does. Here they are living in the slums. They don't even know where their next meal will come from. Fearing for their lives. Riddled with disease and sickness. Do they stop praying? No. What's interesting is if they went and got a checkup, a physical checkup, probably wouldn't look as good, huh? Probably wouldn't look as good. But if they got a spiritual one, they get a clean bill of health. Folks, we can look good on the outside. We can look healthy. We have all these programs, all these wonderful things. We have great worship, all these things. We can dress nice. Oh, what a nice congregation. So pleasant. But what do we look like on the inside? That's what matters most. Spiritual health. The healthy church is devoted to the right things, has good habits. Healthy church is devoted to learning and applying God's word. Healthy church is devoted to each other, encouraging each other in the faith, encouraging each other in our mission. Loving each other as Christ has loved us. Healthy church is devoted to the cross of Jesus Christ, boasting in the cross alone and extending that grace and salvation to others. Healthy church is devoted to prayer and utter dependency on Him to give us what we need. And this is my prayer. And we are a healthy church. Father, Lord, we pray to you. We thank you for your word to remind us of our utter dependency on you. We thank you for your word to guide us as, a, as individuals and, and as a church to, to know exactly what we should be practicing and focusing on and putting our efforts into. Lord, I pray that we we do this and continue to do this. And I, I pray, Lord, that through practicing these things that you would see fit to use us for your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that we allow your word to transform our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would grow in, in love for each other and fellowship with each other, that we would intentionally set, a set aside time to get to know one another. I pray, Lord, that Christ is constantly exalted in this church. Lord, and I pray that we pray. We never stop calling out to you. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.